We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. See T-Mobile.com. The CV CV Report. TPS Report. The CV Report. Give us one word to describe what you're going through right now. Sucky. <laughs> Sucky. Yeah. <laughs> Look, any self-respecting veteran should grow a beard and have a belly. That's the dumbest thing I've heard all day. Like, if we're going to start getting angry now, it's it's a little late. Is live in D.C. with the update on all of this. Good morning. Maybe. I guess not. The C. Report. Welcome to the CV Report. I'm your host, Navy veteran Phil Briggs. And today we're going to hear about all kinds of cool things, including what scientists recently discovered that may actually help combat vets. And what they basically found was a link between PTSD and the functions of specific brain regions. And while that's good news in the bad news department, we'll hear about an incident that I'm calling Operation Fireball. It says very specifically in large words, a topical analgesic. <laughs> I don't know many Marines would quite know what definition of analgesic is. <laughs> we also have a very special guest. She's former deputy assistant to the Secretary of Defense, a former U.S. Army helicopter pilot and air mission commander with the 101st Airborne Division. Did you guys ever listen to Flight of the Valkyrie? Because that's my favorite part of Apocalypse Now. I'm like kind of embarrassed to say this, but I feel like, yes, at some point, I have definitely heard that in like our briefing room or CP or something like that. <laughs> I knew it. And the author of an incredible book, Danger Close, my epic journey as a combat helicopter pilot in Iraq and Afghanistan. We'll have an awesome conversation with Amber Smith. But first, let's hear a couple things that are making news. All right, and as we do at the top of the CV report every single episode, we'll do some military and veteran-related headlines. And here with the news that we can use is my colleague and Capitol Hill reporter, Miss Abby Bennett. Hello. Hi, Phil. How are you? I'm good. I am good. What do you got for us this week? So we have a really interesting study that has come from two VA doctors who are also really prominent um, scientists in California and in Connecticut. Okay. Um, what they have found is that based on a study of 165,000 veterans, veterans may have specific genetic vulnerabilities to PTSD. And basically what this study was aiming to do, we don't have a great understanding of the biology of PTSD. We know mm. a lot about, you know, the symptoms and how veterans are dealing with it. We don't know a lot about how it actually works in the brain. And so that's what they were looking to do. And they were using data from this uh, VA program, it's called the Million Veterans Program, where veterans can choose to volunteer some of their um, health record information for researchers to use in these studies. And so that's why they got such a big pool hmm. of data to pull from. And what they basically found was a link between PTSD and some abnormalities in stress hormones and responses and the functions of specific brain regions um, that they have linked to PTSD. And they're going to try and use this study and this data and, and um, future studies right. to develop better detection and treatment and maybe even some prevention methods, sort of understand the biology of it. Then you can determine what drugs might be most effective to treat it because we know how the brain is responding and we know which 
uh, chemicals to match right. with that to help veterans. Well, that's super cool because like just as we've seen so many other things, even beyond the drug therapies, but we mm-hmm. could say, you know, okay, well, then after a combat tour and, you know, you're a veteran and you start having some symptoms or the, you know, stuff in your headspace starts kicking in, uh, they could go back, check your blood, check your records and say, oh, you know what's worked for other soldiers, sailors and airmen? Uh, This particular kind of therapy. And maybe they'll just know to steer you right in to equine therapy or something when you get discharged as opposed to waiting for the demons to creep in. That is a huge step in the right direction. And that was a study done through the VA? Yes, it is two VA doctors who are also prominent researchers at the Yale School of Medicine and the um, University of California, San Diego School of Medicine. Wow, um, awesome. And so they're they're very hopeful that uh, further testing and, and implementation of, of use of that research will be really helpful in the future. Mm, good news. Write today's date down. <laughs> Good news from the VA. Thank you. Thank you very much. Okay, let's play headline headline lottery here. Uh, you pick a headline, and then we'll go over the story. But I'm only going to give you the headline. That's all you have to hear. Sure. Okay. Did Operation Fireball take hazing too far? <laughs> or, hey, Maverick, where's Charlie? Who was Fireball? Ah, perfect. And Fireball, of course, we get a musical cue for that one. It's a daily double. Fireball. Right? Does everything go better with Pitbull or what? It's a pretty good one. Yeah. All right. Sadly, we're not talking about music. Or cinnamon whiskey, which is the other direction I was going to go with that. Both the only good types of fireball, maybe. Yeah, really. And you combine this song and some cinnamon whiskey and you get a really good time. (laughs) No, taking it down, though. Yeah, that's exactly what happened at the Marine Barracks. Washington, D.C., most recently. This story I authored, so I'll read it to you instead. Go ahead. We've all heard of pounding the blood stripe into the legs of newly minted corporals or tacking on the crow or tacking on the wings, you know, with the punch Ouch. to the arm or the chest. I mean, it's 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 time-honored tradition, you know, a little bit of initiation rituals. Classic. And Marine Corps takes that serious, and they got a hell of a ton of them. And, of course, hazing's now officially prohibited, but you know, let's face it, there's some time-honored traditions that they do. This one, though, I dubbed Operation Fireball. (laughs) And this is, I don't think this should continue at all. In fact, I don't know if this even went too far, but uh, the Marine Corps Times reported not too long ago uh, that a corporal assigned to the silent drill platoon, you know, those badass guys Mm -hmm. that you see near the Lincoln Memorial or, you know, the videos of online, and they're spinning the rifles and they're marching in unison all 6'2 and square-jawed. Sharp. Yeah, I mean, it's just the coolest-looking performance unit. One of the coolest performance units in the military. Anyways, um, a corporal associated with that or attached to that unit, uh, I guess, is facing charges now, uh, including conspiracy to commit abuse of sexual contact and assault uh, related to what appears to be a hazing ritual. Now, check this. According to documents that the Times acquired, um, I, I guess I'm just going to put it mildly here. Uh, th- they held a dude down and applied a topical pain medication Mm -hmm. to the family jewels. Something like Icy Hot or Ben Gay, similar to those. Right, right, exactly. And, you know, it's, it's, it's a horrible thing. Look, no one should be held down and have their pants stripped off of them and then somebody else... You know, slathering them with putting the old. I'm so glad you used the word slather. <laughs> yeah, You're welcome. no one should be touching anybody else's junk, and no one else should be doing that to anybody else. That's not hazing. That's just straight up freakish. Without their permission, it's assault. And I imagine he did not give permission for that. No, 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 no. But uh, of course, they, none of the people were named in this incident, and a lot of stuff redacted. And there was a, the NCIS uh, was doing a thorough investigation. Uh, the Marine Corps spokesman uh, said that the bottom line is hazing is not tolerated at the Marine barracks in Washington. Um, she said that uh, all allegations will be investigated with impartiality, fairness, and urgency, and uh, that the commanding officer has proven that he doesn't take hazing allegations lightly. Uh, apparently, uh, according to some reports, there've already been three people kicked out of the core, and other people have been restricted, light limit, you know, and some well, money taken out games, of their checks. But when it costs you your career, it's not so fun anymore, huh? I just, you know, th- that kind of hazing, I just, I, you know, I'm on the fence about, and maybe I, I shouldn't be because I, look, I don't want anybody to be sexually assaulted. But right. gu- I also know guys and. Some of my devil dog friends are, are, are I'm going to, I'm just going to come out and say it. Some of them are some sick, some bitches that find some crazy stuff like this funny. 
And of course. you know, I I've drank the jungle juice. I've run the gauntlet. <laughs> I was in a fraternity. I saw the paddle. I got the atomic wedgie when I was in high school by the varsity guys. I mean, I've had people all, all up in my business, and it was for the sake of joining the team or being part of the group. Um, mm-hmm. And I, and I don't know. Is I mean, is that kind of fraternity antics? Is that kind of is that too far? Is a little. You know, Ben Gay on the boys, is that is that too much? I think that's the problem is that it's hard to know when it's too far and when somebody could be seriously hurt by it. And, you know, we've had some incidents in college hazing and military hazing in which, you know, accidentally something that began as a fun prank or, or um, a well-intentioned type of hazing turned, you know, serious and unfortunate. And, you know, I think from the perspective of, you know, DOD or, or any big agency, you know, you kind of have to take that hard line from the beginning and just outlaw it entirely because otherwise, you know, if if you're seen to be soft on it and something bad happens, something terrible, something unfortunate that no one I'm sure intended, you know, then who's responsible for that? Can you die by Ben Gay exposure? I mean, can you die by a topical medication? Believe it or not, medication? when you did that story yesterday, I looked it up and a young girl, a, a teenage athlete, I believe she was a track and field star, um, actually did apply far too much, far too frequently. And she did, she overdosed on the active ingredient in the, those types of topical ointments and things. Yeah, so. But, I mean, by... By overdose, I mean, she... She died. God bless, really? Yeah. Oh, mm-hmm. son of a bee. Okay, now I, now I hate myself for even making light of this. That's, well, it, it takes an enormous amount of it over... Like an allergic reaction or some kind of like... Un- no, it's if you... Um, since the active ingredient in it that helps with pain relief is absorbed through the skin, if you have too much of it over a certain time period, I believe the directions on the tubes say no more than three or four times in a single day. Yeah. Um, but, you know, she was applying it in between her track meets and in between her mm. runs. And and so she had just applied so much um, that she absorbed too much of that wow. active ingredient. And, and it does. It can cause a potential overdose. So just oh. because it's over the counter doesn't mean it's not dangerous, folks. Okay. Okay. Lesson learned. I'm glad you pointed that out. Mm. So I dial back my humor <laughs> a little bit with this story. That's uh. Yeah. I think, you know, in light of hazing, they probably should have given the option. Like, right. I, I think they should basically, if they want to continue this Operation Fireball. Mm-hmm. Yes, we're going to hear it again. Fireball. Oh, there it is. There it is. Yeah, I think Operation Fireball going forward needs to uh, have the person opt in. And the, maybe they adjust the haze so that he has to put some on his hand. He has to apply it to himself. Oh. And then he's not allowed to touch a towel or uh, shower for, you know, like See, five minutes almost, or something. that's almost worse that you have to do it to yourself. Yeah, right? I mean, yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> it's I'm almost just, worse from the hazing perspective. <laughs> it's just humiliation on top right. of the haze. Uh, I'm also of the opinion that I'm glad they didn't read the label. I know we were looking at the boxes or looking at packaging of mm-hmm. topical pain relief medications, and um, I couldn't help but notice that uh, you know it says very specifically in large words above Ben Gay, a topical analgesic. <laughs> I don't know many Marines would quite know what the you know definition of analgesic is, but I guarantee it wouldn't have ended up on the family jewels. <laughs> All right. Abby Bennett, that's enough horseplay. That's enough silliness. Hey, as always, thank you for the study. Thank you for sharing the headlines. And thank you for humoring me with uh, the strange, the weird, and the unusual. How do I follow you again on Twitter? It is Abby, A-B-B-I-E. The letter R is in red. And Bennett, B-E-N-N-E-T-T. Two N's, two T's. Abby Bennett, always good to have you. And you can follow her reporting at ConnectingVets.com. Thank you, Phil. All right, our next guest on the podcast is just flat out impressive. She's been a combat helicopter pilot and an air mission commander in the 101st Airborne Division, flying combat tours in Iraq and Afghanistan. She got up close and personal, taking out enemy positions and saving lives on the battlefield in the OH-58D Kiowa Warrior. She went on to positions like Department of Defense and Department of Veterans Affairs advisor to the Presidential Transition Team. She went on to be the Deputy Assistant to the Secretary of Defense for Outreach and Public Affairs. But as much as I want to hear about advising the senior levels of our government, 
I want to hear more about the battle stories and what it's like to be a helicopter pilot in the Army. And that's a big thing for me to say, considering I'm a Navy veteran and you are an Army veteran. Amber Smith, welcome to the CV Report. Thank you. It's great to be with you. Go Army. (laughs) Yes, so much I want to say. Uh, Your book, Danger Close, is just really, really fun to read. And it's great for whether you're veteran, military, or a civilian. I mean, there's just so many things you can draw from it. And I'm eager to talk to you about it. But before we dig too deep into the book, I wanted to just start with kind of a little bit about getting to know you, the real Amber Smith. You grew up with a rich military tradition, and you've had your hands on a yoke and throttle since you were a kid. Share with me about growing up on a farm with a runway and pilot parents. Well, looking back now, you know, as an adult, I... I can't believe that I was lucky enough to have that upbringing. And I have two sisters. I'm the middle of uh, the middle child. And, you know, they had the same upbringing as I did and the same experiences. And we grew up thinking that it was normal. And now that I'm an adult and looking back, I just realized how abnormal that it actually was. But I'm super grateful for getting to be exposed to aviation at such a young age. We have this long lineage of aviators and military in my family. My great-grandfather was an infantryman in World War One. My grandfather was in the Army Air Corps and flew airplanes in World War II between Europe and Northern Africa and then went on to fly some helicopter prototypes. And then my father was in the 82nd Airborne in the early 60s and went on to be an airline pilot and was super big into general aviation as a hobby as well. My mom was a pilot. And so it, it just, aviation is in my blood. I grew up around it. Uh, I, I really go into some specific stories in my book, Danger Close, about it. Um, but I just, I say I got bitten by the aviation bug at a super early age and it was my calling and I loved it. And I had an interesting path what eventually led me back to pursue aviation specifically for the military. Uh, but um, I just, I loved it. I loved the challenge of it. I loved the thrill of it. I loved that you're, as a job for aviation, you're not necessarily sitting in an office every day. Yeah. And so it was just a fantastic, um, you know, it, my upbringing was a pa- fantastic path, which led me eventually um, to becoming a Kiowa warrior helicopter pilot. So cool. And, you know, as I told you earlier when we were setting up the interview, you know, I, I think about it. I'm a journalist. I'm a reporter. I'm a broadcaster. I'm not passing anything that cool down to my kids. Um, I loved the part about how for, what is it, Sunday breakfasts or weekend breakfasts, you guys would like fly somewhere and one of the sisters would be the lucky one to fly with him and he'd pick a different <laughs> one. But like you guys actually as a little kid, how old were you when you were doing that? Were you like a, like a I mean, like a 10, 11 year old and he would let you hold the controls or? Oh, younger than that. We would, you're absolutely right. I talk about that in the book. Uh, we, I grew up on a farm in rural Washington state and my dad, his dream, he had, he had grown up in sort of um, like in his, in his twenties was in the Los Angeles area. And his dream was to move uh, to a farm and that's what he wanted to do. And he always wanted to have a, a, a a grass airstrip that he could fly like a small little plane off of. Hmm. And so anyway, he did that. He worked really hard and ended up buying this farm and uh, sort of built this grass strip that he could fly this Cessna 150 on that all three of his daughters learned to fly on. And it it was when we would get ready for school in the morning, uh, we sometimes would wake up really early and go for a flight with my dad uh or on the weekends we would sleep in a little bit later and then we'd we'd talk to my mom about where we were going to meet and some fbo's at the airports have little like breakfast diners that you can go to and so you know i don't it always was sort of like i don't want to say a fight between my sisters but we would always feel so like excited if we were the ones that it was our turn to go on the flight with my dad and we didn't have to drive in the car with my mom. And so we got to, you know, walk around sort of like um, excited for the rest of the day. Well, the rest the, while the other sisters were sort of pouting that it wasn't their turn. Right. Right. That's awesome. And I could tell you, I was uh, recently on the Eastern shore of Maryland and we stopped at this little joint that's right near some small airport outside Cambridge 
uh, like a little diner. And sure enough, there was this like 16 year old kid that was there with his parents and he had just got done landing the plane and he was working on his flight quals and everything. And I just thought, man, that is so cool as a youngster. I still to be love to this day. Yes. I love small town general aviation just because like I grew up going to different airports and I always remember that I loved when I would go inside of them, at least when I was learning how to fly. I don't know if they still do this. I'm sure some of them still do, but on your solo flight, the tradition is to cut out the back of your shirt and with whatever shirt you're wearing. And they write all of your information with your date and who your instructor pilot was. And, you know, if you passed your check ride and all of this stuff. So I, and so it's just like so neat to see. It's almost like, bumper stickers all over except there are these cutout t-shirts all over the inside of these small airports that it was really entertaining for a for a kid to go to and get to check out different ones all the time very cool very cool i'll be looking for the kids with no backs on their shirts or the people with no backs on their shirts from here forward okay so going usually you switched out your shirt first oh okay Okay, so going forward, uh, we go to college, and of course, like so many of our generation, and specifically your generation, um, you heed the call of 9-11 because it just happens, and it touches us all, and it didn't take long for you to just realize, boom, with this upbringing we just spoke of, that's your calling. That's what you're going to do. But you took an interesting path, and as a Navy veteran myself, I, you know, I served aboard this thing called an aircraft carrier, and... Um, you know, we had jets. I mean, you you could have gone navy. You know, I bet you'd have looked sharp in the you know in the choker whites. And I mean, <laughs> you know, you could have been a navy aviator, but you went army. Talk to me about that. So you're absolutely right. I sort of took a break. I had this aviation upbringing. I got super into gymnastics. I ended up going to University of Washington as a cheerleader. And I sort of, I guess, took a break from aviation. And while I was in college, 9-11 happened. And after feeling a little bit lost in college in terms of my path forward and what I wanted to do in life, it really brought everything back home to me. And I realized I, I, I grew up with this um, very patriotic family. And like I said, we have a, a military background. And I felt after 9-11 that it was crystal clear in terms of like, now is the time. If I'm going to serve my country, I feel like this is when our nation needs, you know, it the most. And the way that I felt that I could contribute was through becoming a pilot because of my background in aviation. But the, I looked at all of the different programs with the army, the air force, the Navy and the Marines and actually army was last because I wasn't even familiar that with any of the aviation programs that the army had. But once I dug deep and found that the army had this aviation program, that was, I felt perfect for me, but there was one catch. And like you said, it was, it was for helicopter pilots, not for fixed wing pilots. And that was the only thing I'd ever flown in my life was fixed wing aircraft. And so I was a little uh, unsure at first. I was like, what if I sign up for this and try out and put all of this effort in and then helicopters are just not for me. And so I do have a, a story in my book that talks about how I really was exposed. I wanted to make sure I was exposed to, to helicopters prior to me signing on the dotted line. But when it, I actually was, it was about, I, I fell in love and I knew that that was the path that I wanted to take. And I could not wait, like having to wait to actually go to basic, you know, taking all the tests and doing the interviews and application process and waiting to see if you get accepted. And then once you do actually having to wait to go to basic training, because I, I went into the warrant officer flight program. So I was a warrant officer and it was just, I, it was like, hurry up and wait, which I, also learned about once I joined the army. Oh, oh I just, yeah. <laughs> I was so excited to, to get moving and um, so happy that I was, I, I got to take the helicopter route. Oh, that's awesome. That's awesome. Um, what bird did you fly? I flew the OH-58 Delta Kiowa Warrior. It's a light attack reconnaissance helicopter. It has a 50 cal machine gun rocket pods that carry seven high explosive rockets. And then it can also be configured to carry Hellfire missiles. And why I loved the Kiowa was its mission. We fly direct support for any ground force that you can think of. If they are 
a U.S. or NATO force on the ground, I've probably worked with them in, in some capacity, including infantry, um, support convoys, um, like I said, all NATO forces, special forces, Marines, um, and then obviously the in-country Iraq or Afghanistan militaries as well. And why? what really sets the Kiowa apart from any of the other um, aircraft in really the military is that close connection that we have with the ground troops that we are supporting. So we fly extremely low level, you know, well within eyesight of the enemy and we're well within firing range of the enemy as well. But we are out there to um, look for the bad guys, look for the enemy Hmm. in the hillsides of Afghanistan, look for people in Iraq placing IEDs ahead of a friendly convoy. Um, But it's, the mission is also broader than that. You know, there's, instances where we've had to fly escorts for medevacs. We call, we observe for call for fires, um, artillery missions. Um, We, probably the biggest thing that we did in Iraq and Afghanistan, aside from hunting for IEDs on the roads, uh, was responding to troops in contacts, which which basically means that the friendly ground forces, usually U.S. troops, are in a firefight with the enemy. And they call us in sometimes with only a call sign of frequency in a grid and we have to be able to get to that location assess the situation both friendly and enemy and then make some sometimes very quick um life and death decision making when we come on station and um it was the best part of the job was getting to support those guys on the ground who are in the thick of the fight day in and day out and had to had to live out there wow that's amazing. And, you know, I've, I've, let's see, I spoke with a couple different people in the aviation side. Um, a guy that was a, a member of the Night Stalkers, and he was kind of like the guys that inserted some of the special operations forces into, you know, their theater and into their assignments, um, fl- you know, flying blind, flying at night, you know, uh, mm-hmm. on a dangerous two-way range. I can only imagine what that's like when you can fly and you can see what's going on or you can see the threats down there. I mean, that's just a gut check. And, uh, you know, I don't want to say a thrill to glamorize it, but there had to be moments that adrenaline just, you were so pumped. You had to be jacked when you got off one of those missions. It is your adrenaline is when you, when you take off and you, you know, strap into the helicopter, you take off out of the, um, fob that you're on and you go into the fight. Essentially, you do not know what is waiting for you in that six hour mission block or however long you end up flying up there. And and that's the thing that um, you never know what you're going to get into in terms of some sort of fight with the enemy. My experiences um, was much more in terms of enemy contact was way more significant um, and frequent in Afghanistan. And um, so, yeah, it is a weird way of saying it's a thrill, but it actually really is because your adrenaline is always pumping and you get used to it. And uh, it's, it's a crazy life, uh, but it was incredible. Like it was absolutely incredible what I got to do. Uh, I don't know how else to say that. That's one of the reasons I didn't want to fly once I got out of the military was because I would never be able to match what I did as a Kiowa warrior helicopter in the army when I flew in Iraq and Afghanistan. And I was like, I didn't get out of the military to do a much less cooler version of what I used to do. So it was um, a time that I will always cherish. It is what made me who I am today. Um, it was an incredibly challenging job and an incredibly stressful job on a daily basis. Um, but you find out who you are, you find out who you're capable or what you're capable of. And um, you, you, we helped people every day. We helped Americans and um, we, we helped Iraqis. We helped Afga- Afghans and getting to do that. I did it for about seven years and eight months, I, I do believe, is my time in the military. Mm-hmm. And it, it's just, I am grateful for getting getting to do what I did. 
So cool. So cool. Tip of the spear. Tip of the sword right there. That is that is awesome. Um, before we move on real quick, I just want to ask, because I never asked this to any other pilot before, and I'm dying to. Did you guys ever listen to Flight of the Valkyrie? Did that ever come up? Because that's my favorite part of Apocalypse Now, you know, when, the, when they start coming into the beach and you can just hear Flight of the Valkyrie. Did you guys ever do that? Or did you ever have any soundtrack music that you maybe played? Okay, I'm, I'm like kind of embarrassed to say this, but I feel like, yes, at some point, I have definitely heard that in like our briefing room or CP or something like that. <laughs> it, it wasn't like... <laughs> It wasn't like, uh, like I guess a consistent thing, but I, I'm sure I, we listened to that at some point. That's cool. A year is a long time. Let me tell you that. We, <laughs> I did a year in Iraq and a year in Afghanistan, so <laughs> I am certain that that we listened to that at some point. Now I'm confident that while you guys were in the air, uh, there wasn't a whole lot of music on the birds, and you were just basically on the radio keeping comms. But uh... we have five radios in that aircraft, and when they all start going off at once. Uh, yeah, you're, you're a little too busy. That's the thing is it seems like you're either going a hundred miles an hour in terms of things going on. Like when something bad happens, it happens all at once where, you know, you might be low on fuel. You might be getting a call that there's an artillery, um, mission coming in and you have to fly to a certain grid to make sure you don't get hit by one. And then there's also a troops in contact and then there's other aircraft coming in, maybe a medevac to come in to, uh, pick up some of the friendlies that were injured in the troops in contact that we are responding to. In the meantime, we're having to set up a, a, a CCA, a close combat attack to engage the enemy that is firing on the friendly forces mm. and five, five radios going off in your ear at once. So it's, it's a lot. And then, uh, and then you have, you know, other parts of your mission block where it is as quiet as can be. And, you know, you and your co-pilots are just like, it's, it's just, you really get to know someone when you're in a, you know, five foot wide cockpit for hours and hours and hours. You you hear all sorts of stories from their lives. It's, it's entertaining. I'm sure. I'm sure. In fact, I've been stuck in studios with uh, colleagues before for hours at a time, and I'm sure they can say the same thing. They know far too much about me than they ever wanted to. <laughs> um, let's talk about that a little bit, uh, because you're right. The fob life, you know, it's something I don't have on my resume. I wasn't a combat warfighter. Uh, you know, mm -hmm. I, was, I was in the Navy, but I, I didn't see the fob. And I know it's those moments that are after combat is settled down and you're back on that fob. Uh, this is where I didn't see some things that I later learned were really challenging for women. And I say I didn't see it, one, because my rate, you know, I was a photojournalist in the Navy. So to me, it was just natural, normal, and every day to have women work alongside me at the rate or at my MOS that I chose because broadcasting and journalism is just to me this like, you know, men, women, black, white, green, orange, doesn't matter. I mean, we all do it and it's, it's just diverse, but you were a woman on a fob in a combat zone and a pilot that is arguably kind of a boys club rating, right? What was that like? And what were the challenges that you had to deal with? Well, like I said, I grew up with two sisters, so I didn't even have any brothers to sort of prepare me for army life where I was about to have, you know, work, work in a very male dominated environment. But I feel like I, I knew that there would be challenges ahead. I knew I, it wasn't going to be a cakewalk and I sort of accepted the challenge and knew that I would have to um, work really hard. Um, I knew that some people were not going to like me for the for no reason other than my existence of being there with them and, and doing the same job that yeah, yeah. Uh, they were doing. Uh, so I feel like I sort of went in with my, all right, I guess I should say I tried to go in with my eyes wide open, but I don't think I knew how hard it would actually be until I experienced it. And I will say when I got to my unit, I sort of naively thought that, oh, flight school is going to be the hard part. I'm going to have to you know, learn to fly and, and then I'll get to my unit and I'll be given a fair shake just like everybody else. But I didn't sort of know the, the politics behind it and, and what it would be like to be a 22 year old female um, where everybody was almost on average, probably a decade older than me um, and how they would feel about that. And there were some people who thought it was the neatest thing in the world that a young woman um, loved her country enough and loved aviation and worked really hard um, and was there. Uh, so 
some people thought that was great. And then there were other people that did, could not stand me for zero reason whatsoever, other than, you know, they, they didn't like that my presence sort of, they felt made their job be a little bit, bit, um, they felt like, I guess they weren't as big of a badass when I could do the same job that they could, I guess. Hmm. Uh, and I had to work really, really hard. I will say my first year in my unit and then my entire first deployment to Iraq. And, uh, I was thankful. I had some people who were so great to me and I had an instructor pilot who I talk about in my book who, you know, he trained me up and, um, quizzed me and didn't take it easy on me. He quizzed me day in and day out. And he really pushed me to be the best pilot I could be and the best warrant officer. And, um, you know, taught me that I, you know, hard work pays off. And, um, eventually I got put up for pilot in command, ended up making pilot in command while I was in Iraq. And then, um, when I came back, when we came back from that deployment, that's really when I feel like the the um, tide had changed a little bit in terms of um, I had worked incredibly hard for years. And I think people saw that and it took a little while for them to trust and um, realize that I was capable and willing and could do the exact same job that they were. And I could accomplish the mission and I was a team player and was there to enhance um, and, so after that, I, I, I guess I always say that I hate saying that I had to prove myself, but that's just the reality of, of what it was. I think anybody has to in a situation like that. Um, but it, it took some time and there were, you know, lots of challenges along the way. Mm. Um, I, I sort of got sidetracked from fob life there. But, no, hey, no worries. Uh, Trust me, I love going along the ride with you because like, just again, just like you can see in your book, Danger Close, um, your descriptions of all these things are just so real and 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 just so important. I think for me to hear, uh, having never experienced them, and 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 I did want to note, you know, you let you you didn't even pat yourself on the back fully there by saying you were air mission commander in the 101st Airborne Division, which is one of the famed divisions of the U.S. Army, and um, you know that was quite an achievement, you know, to do that. Uh, you know, whether you're a boy or a girl, I mean, I don't even care. I mean, <laughs> that, that's a pretty badass rank. That's a pretty. Pretty kick-ass assignment. It was. So um, that is just, was, that's awesome. Hey, yeah. can I ask you now, uh, as we kind of look at some things and the issues uh, in the veteran community, you know, you and I both, I mean, we, I think our heart breaks me in a different way. Cause I have a daughter, but I see on Facebook, sometimes these videos and sometimes these gals that are saying things that happened to them. And I mean, it makes my heart hurt. It, mm-hmm. uh, military sexual trauma, any sexual trauma. I feel as though I don't understand enough about how the VA or how the systems are in place now to deal with it. Is it still different for a woman? Is it difficult for a woman to find good care? Or uh, even if you're not a victim of some sort of bad situation or some horrible incident, Mm -hmm. um, is it still, do we need to change things more? Is it a military change? Is it a societal change? Do we need to just stop looking at each other like, genders and start talking to each other like people or or what the hell needs to change to make it right for the warriors that are women well i would say a little of a little bit of all of the above i so when i got to my unit it was 2004 i like i said i was in the i went to a air cav unit and women were still extremely rare and for me, that seems like 2004 doesn't seem that long ago at all. Maybe for, you know, current uh, service members, it seems like a lifetime or a, a, like the olden days. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, <laughs> but back then, women were still extremely rare. Uh, when I got to, to my unit, there was one, my troop, I should say, um, there was one other female pilot um, in my troop when I got there. In the squadron, there was probably like five-ish maybe of about 300 um, total. Uh, and, and so I want to say that things have changed significantly, um, in the last 15 years for the better. Um, like even when we were deploying to Iraq in 2005, there were like, when it comes, when you want to talk about 
maternity care and leave and all of that. Um, the the military as a whole has made some significant advances in the past, um, I don't know, seven years, I would say, because it used to be so bad. It used to be really, really bad. And I think that thankfully, because, you know, uh, women is the fastest growing demographic. And I think that now that we have this bigger veteran population of women and they're coming out and telling their stories and people are realizing that the military had not, I guess, properly adjusted to to bringing women in, that they've been able to fix some of these um, problems that exist. And so I'm hopeful that they will continue to progress. I think they have made some significant advances, but don't get me wrong. There are still some sort of policy and paperwork problems when it comes to sort of what I would think of as common sense. Um, So, and then if you want to get into the VA, that's a, that's a whole separate issue um, in terms of access to care and um, and then if you want to talk about society and about what the um, sort of civilian sector um, looks at when they see a veteran and what they see and some of the stereotypes that go along with it um, I still think we have a long road ahead of us with that that one yeah I'd like to see more communication and more branding for what the veteran experience is like because we're left to define it on our own experiences and some people know a lot of veterans and some people don't know one and it would be cool if they had like I don't know more public service or more mandatory commercials in a 60 second block during every friggin football game to show you um, what the experience is like and 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 how America needs to understand each other, mainly how America needs to understand the veteran. What should we be focusing on now? What are the most important things that need to change? With the, in regards to the VA? Yeah. Uh, I would say, so there has been, the administration has worked, uh, you know, day in and day out with Congress uh, to pass the Mission Act. Um, and I think that, so you may have heard about the Choice Act oh, yeah, um, yeah. that was passed a few years ago. And unfortunately, when, when that piece of legislation was passed, there were lots of loopholes in it. And the VA has been around for a very long time. And they are able to um, find loopholes in a piece of legislation. And instead of change things as the uh, as it as the bill was intended, um, they then just try to find ways to maintain the status quo instead of changing for the better because change is extremely hard for a government bureaucracy and their employees. Um, so unfortunately, there were some issues with the CARE Act, but the Mission Act has sort of um, closed some of those loopholes and really made some, uh, I, I think, will positively impact the VA and the veteran experience with the VA as a whole. It's going to take a little bit of time uh, to get implemented as it always does, um, as I have learned in my time from government, but it is going down the, the right path. And so I'm hopeful for the future. I think they've made some positive steps when it comes to the Mission Act and the way it'll change things for veterans. Um, but it's a constant like evolving process. Yeah, fingers crossed. I, I want the best outcome for everybody with respect to choice and and that act. Uh, was it mischaracterized when people were like, okay, Trump just wants to get in here and carve up veterans' uh, medical services for his buddies at private yes. service companies? I mean, was that yeah, a mischaracterization? That it was a mischaracterization. You often hear the talking point of, oh, he he wants to just privatize care. Um, and or shut down the VA, which is as far from the truth as it can be. Um, there's not seeking outside care is first of all that shouldn't be demonized. If you if you as a veteran should receive the best care, whether that's at the VA or whether that's at a, a healthcare person that you select because that's the best care. Um, it's just become so over politicized in Washington, D.C. with the term privatization. And that is inaccurate, as we've seen. Um, we're almost through, uh, you know, the, the three years of Trump's presidency. And there 
is no privatization. There may be better access to care outside of the VA, but it's just it's super easy to attack on that talking point of privatization. But it is not true. Um, all the administration has been trying to do is choice. There's a difference between privatization and choice and choice helps veterans. Nobody should be against uh, allowing veterans to have choices when it comes to their health care. Yeah, it certainly works at lunchtime when you drive down any street. And there's seven different restaurants and drive throughs that can go through. Choice is a good option. <laughs> I like having choices. Right? It's very nice. Yes. Um, last question. Um, when you were deputy assistant to the Secretary of Defense for Outreach and Public Affairs there, um, we went through that period where the DOD or rather the Pentagon specifically didn't have any press conferences for like a year. And mm-hmm. I've always wondered about that. Not to sound juvenile or stupid, but what was up with that? Why why did we go like a whole year and then finally Gene Simmons of Kiss is like in the press briefing room? Um, What was up with that? Okay, so I will say with the Gene Simmons. So actually, when I was there, uh, we launched an outreach initiative, the largest outreach initiative in the Department of Defense called This Is Your Military. It's hashtag Know Your Mill. It's still ongoing now if anybody wants to check it out. And it's really an attempt to bridge the civilian-military divide hmm. um, and, and really reach a part of the uh, American public um, in an area that they're getting their information from. And a lot of this may be unfortunate uh, to some, but a lot of people get their information from social media, from um, our influencers, and a lot of people pay attention to what celebrities say. Hmm. So we sort of reached out to those sectors um, and wanted to connect with them. And how do they have a connection to the military? How do they appreciate uh, those who serve and have sacrificed? And so uh, that's probably why you have seen a bigger uptick with interaction with DOD in sort of some, I guess, areas that DOD never really cared about connecting to, with before. Uh, but the point is, is that the civilian military divide is a real issue and it may not be an ish, an immediate issue as in, you know, are we going to war with North Korea? Are we going to war with Iran in terms of a problem being immediate? But it is a long-term threat to our nation. Less and less people have any connection to the military. It's becoming a family business in terms of who is serving and and why they are serving. So that answers your Gene Simmons question. Uh, When it comes to the other press briefing. Yeah, like why so um, long off the grid? Why so quiet? Because to your point, it would sound like, okay, well, maybe more press briefings would be better. And let's bring in like more people from the entertainment industry, although very few have military ties. You know, there are a few um, in the hip hop community. You got Ice-T. I mean, you know, he was a Marine. Um, No, look, I understand the complaint. I understand the complaint from the defense press corps um, because they weren't getting the information that they needed. But I think it just changes on leadership, just as we saw. Uh, You know, Secretary Mattis, he did press gaggles with the press all the time. So while the press complained that there wasn't these on-camera briefings, that doesn't mean that they weren't having interaction with the Secretary of Defense and other defense officials and military leaders inside the Pentagon. That was still happening. It, ha- it was just sort of a shift in the way uh, information was being given. And so there were off-camera press gaggles. Hmm. But like I said, I do think it is just sort of different leadership styles. Um, we've seen with the new Secretary of Defense, Secretary Asper, he has said that he wants more on-camera press briefings. So I think we probably will see a change there. Right. And, you know, I was in the military long enough to know that I had one CO that operated one way and uh, the ship's crew was, uh, you know, well worked. Let's put it that way. And then I had another CO that came in and and the ship's crew had a totally different experience. All right. Well, um, tip of the cap to whoever brought Gene Simmons in. And and, and if you can, give me credit for the iced tea idea, because I really think that'd be cool. We have iced tea. No, I like it. I maybe I I might just pass that on. We'll see. And and if you do, can I get the interview with iced tea? Because I try to find him. On Twitter, and I just look like such a stalker every time. Like, hey, I, you, at Ice MFT. Yes, you, need, you need to get invited to that briefing, yes, definitely. <laughs>
maybe I'll go for my Pentagon press pass and I'll just stand up and be the one that asks that. Hey, next week, can you have iced tea here? Because <laughs> Secretary Desper, yeah, you were, be you like, were, are you guys taking requests for future interviews? Because I've got a list. Dude, could you see the room? Could you see CNN and all those other <laughs> reporters? They would just s their pants if I did that. That would be funny. <laughs> probably be the last day I had a press pass too, because what I do know about the senior military officials, and I think we can both agree on this, uh, sometimes their sense of humor. You know, if they have like more than two stars on their shoulder, like the sense of humor wasn't always as robust as mine. They are <laughs> very busy, which I think takes a lot of the humor out of things. <laughs> yeah, no doubt. And doing what they have to do, doing uh, the great work uh, that, that is done by the Department of Defense and, and, and all our military members. Um, you know, I'd rather they not have a sense of humor sometimes. So God bless. Good stuff. <laughs> I'm glad you do. You were wonderful. You're the author of Danger Close, My Epic Journey as a Combat Helicopter Pilot in Iraq and Afghanistan. Former Army Kiowa warrior Amber Smith. Uh, so great to get to know you. I, I'm sorry I took too long here on this interview, but gosh, I, I could just no. I could chat with you for a long time, man. Tell me the next time you're in D.C. so we can uh, go out and I can have you down here to the studios and, uh, you know, we'll go get a cup of coffee on us. That would be fantastic. I would love that. And this is, this is a great interview. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, right on. And uh, real quick, well, where do I find more information about the book and where do I find more information on you or how do I follow you on Twitter? So you can find my book, Danger Close, across any bookstore platform, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, wherever books are sold. Uh, you can find out more information about me and speaking uh, at officialambersmith.com. And then my social media handles for Instagram and Twitter is at ambersmithusa. Nice. All right, Amber Smith USA, appreciate you like you don't even know. Here's to you, ma'am, and uh, come down and see us real soon in D.C., please. Will do. Thanks, Phil. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary.